Well, we're in Matthew. It seems to be missing... A lot of things. A lot of things. It's interesting. That's better. We've made it to Matthew 12, verses 1 to 21. If you've got a Bible, you can read along, or you can just look at the screen, or you can close your eyes and listen. This is from the NLT. This is about to get fiery. At about that time, Jesus was walking through some grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, so they began breaking off some heads of grain and eating them. But some Pharisees saw them do it and protested. Look, your disciples are breaking the law by harvesting grain on the Sabbath. Jesus said to them, haven't you read in the scriptures what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He went into the house of God and he and his companions broke the law by eating the sacred loaves of bread that only the priests are allowed to eat. And haven't you read in the law of Moses that the priests on duty in the temple may work on the Sabbath? I tell you, there's no one here who's even... Oh, that's wrong. I tell you, there is one here who is even greater than the temple. But you would not have condemned my innocent disciples if you knew the meaning of this scripture. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. For the Son of Man is Lord, even over the Sabbath. Then Jesus went over to their synagogue, where he noticed a man with a deformed hand. The Pharisees asked Jesus, does the law permit a person to work by healing on the Sabbath? They were hoping he'd say yes, so they could bring charges against him. And he answered, if you had a sheep that fell into a well on the Sabbath, wouldn't you work to pull it out? Of course you would. And how much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Yes, the law permits a person to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, hold out your hand. So the man held out his hand and it was restored, just like the other one. Then the Pharisees called a meeting to plot how to kill Jesus. But Jesus knew what they were planning, so he left that area and many people followed him. He healed all the sick among them, but warned them not to reveal who he was. This fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah concerning him. He's my beloved who pleases me. I'll put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not fight or shout or raise his voice in public. He will not crush the weakest reed will put out a flickering candle. Finally, he will cause justice to be victorious and his name will be the hope of all the world. day I had this speech pathology student that I was supervising and she was in her final term of her degree so she was really feeling the pressure and she was quite an anxious and highly strung student and she was running a therapy session with a young woman who had a major stroke and I was watching through the one-way mirror and just making some notes and I noticed that the young woman 
who had the stroke was getting very frustrated. And the tears of frustration were starting to flow down her face. And I was waiting for the student to stop the session and just take a time out, offer her a tissue and slow everything down. I was waiting, I was waiting. And <laughs> my student just barreled on into the session. So I had to knock on the door and call a little, whoa. And this student was so worried about running the session right and, and doing the right things and giving the right whatever, the right cues and the right this and that, that she completely missed it. She actually didn't notice. She was totally blinded to the person in front of her. Now that might sound a bit odd and a bit extreme, but I think it's actually a little snapshot of the biggest snapshot that we saw in Matthew. Because in this, in this incident, which I reckon they started referring to as Sabbath gate eventually, the Pharisees are, are just totally uninterested in the disciples' well-being. And I would say that they would have preferred the man with the deformed hand to just remain with it rather than actually have the healing. Because all they could really um, see was this threat that Jesus was posing to their system and their position and their influence. So they were just totally blinded to the humanity in front of them. It says that they go off to plot and kill Jesus. And that word kill in the Greek is like obliterate. It's like get rid of him and his ministry and any trace of him. So for them to have had this reaction, there must be more to it than just some picking of grain in an untimely way and a healing of a poorly hand. And as I read over this and read over it, I could see this just collision course between this religiousness and the gospel of Jesus. So as a bit of background in terms of the Pharisees, they were like the, the Jewish religious leaders. They were very highly respected in the Jewish community because it was a religious community. They were considered the experts on the law, so all of the commandments and instructions that had been given to Moses. And they were, they were incredibly dedicated, whole lives dedicated to the study and the teaching of the law um, and uh, all of the instructions that, that God had given. And by the time Jesus was born, this whole institution had been established, which had the law, plus many, many ancillary rules and traditions and extra bits that the Pharisees thought would be helpful to the community so that actually they were really ruled by just a, a slate of different things that they had to comply with. And later in Matthew 23, Jesus says that the scribes and Pharisees tie up heavy and cumbersome loads and put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not lift a finger to help. So you can see what's developed that instead of shepherding the flock, the Pharisees have actually just set themselves up over the people and created this religious system that's just draining the life out of the community and actually leading people away from God, not towards him. But that's what religiousness does. Because at the heart of religion, there's this principle set up that says your spiritual performance is the means to your acceptance by God. 
and your spiritual performance determines your level of spiritual you know, inferiority or superiority. So God's instructions and laws, you kind of use to give yourself some self-assurance that you're on the right track, you're getting it right, and that if you do that enough, that God will owe you a blessing. So you're automatically going to be very concerned about the details of the law and whether you're getting it right or whether you're getting it wrong. And that's what most of your decisions and interactions will come down to. And it gets very exhausting because there's something under the surface all the time, this need to prove yourself and justify yourself and this need to maintain this very high standard of performance. And you end up tying up all your value and your worth into how well you're doing and you're constantly being triggered with your insecurities because it's like, did I match up? Was I enough? Did I do enough? Is God happy with me? It's just a massive burden. I mean, even the Pharisees were at rest. The idea of rest was very exhausting. There were a lot of rules around rest. They defined how far you could walk, how much of a physical thing you could carry, how much food prep you could do. It was really extreme, but actually this, this religiousness is very much alive and well in the world today. And that's because as humans, we're really prone to being religious. We have this thing in us that wants to play a starring role in our own salvation. We want to be able to define for ourselves what's good and then live up to that and then earn our own crown. It's just there. And Jesus really tackles that head on. He ends up really stirring up the hornet's nest. He says, first of all, that there's one here who's greater than the temple. Just so many offensive things that he says and does in Sabbath gate. So with the temple, it was like the most sacred place in the centre of the sacred system. So Jesus is saying that he, he's claiming that he is bigger than the religious system. We don't worship the system. We need to worship God. And there's something bigger at stake here. There's something more important than the rituals and getting things right. He talks about desiring mercy, not sacrifice. If you're going to be merciful to someone, then your heart actually has to be moved. I think mercy is what happens when love actually looks like something and when something in you responds to the pain in someone else. And Jesus is saying that's actually more important than going through the, the rituals, the, the day-to-day things that we do, mostly just to make ourselves feel better. And then he says that he's the Lord of the Sabbath, which was an outrageous thing to say because the Sabbath was such a holy day. And he's saying that he's above it, that actually he made the Sabbath and he gave it to man. So he's actually bigger than the law and the whole religious system that got built around it. And I thought it was interesting that Jesus doesn't say we don't need the Sabbath. He doesn't throw it out. He doesn't say it's just for the Jewish people or it's just for this or it's just for that. The Sabbath is still good. This idea of having boundary lines around work and rest and being intentional about replenishment um, is something that he actually made for us. But he's not going to 
submit to this religious system and, and play ball. And then just to underline that and highlight it, he goes into the synagogue and heals someone. Now, the Pharisees just couldn't care less whether someone had been healed or not. They don't actually have a lot of interest in people's lives because their religiousness has just blinded them to the person in front of them. So all they can really see is this threat to their system and their position. And we, we look at that and think, bad Pharisees. But I think we're all prone to this, this inability to see the humanity of the, in the, of the person in front of us sometimes. I, sometimes I think that as humans, we can go one of two ways. On the one hand, there are people who are just prone to getting tangled up in religious behaviours feeling like um, they just have to do enough to keep God happy. But there's always this sense that um, they're always slightly unacceptable to God and God's always just a little bit disappointed in them and that what God has for them is just out of reach. And if they could just get their lives fixed up, then they and God could be good. And that kind of means that you're prone to feeling just a little bit inferior or a little bit superior based on how good of a day you've had, basically. And that's the lens that you'll see people through. You'll be making little comparisons and little judgments and wondering, how, do I, how am I stacking up in this conversation? Am I looking okay here? Am I keeping God happy? Am I saying the right thing? Is this person happy? Am I feeling inferior? Um, and it just blinds you to actually who the person is. And then if you end up feeling threatened by the person, you kind of want to be right. You're going to be much less able to be generous because you're too busy in this mode of self-justification all the time. And it just makes it hard to see the person in front of you. Then there's kind of the moral choose-your-own-adventure camp, which says, actually, I want to define what's good. I'm going to say what's good, what's right, but then you have to live up to it if you're in that camp. That's also exhausting. And because you've set yourself up as God in that area, you also have to judge everybody else. That's also very tiring. More self-justification. And again, it's really hard to see the person in front of you when you're trying to decide whether they live up to your morals or not or what you think is the right way to go. So the gospel of Jesus actually offers this justification from a, a totally different source. And the gospel says that self-justification and self-salvation is just a futile endeavour. And that actually God is a God of holy love. And that as humans, we need to actually receive forgiveness from something, someone much bigger than ourselves and actually surrender to someone much bigger than ourselves. And that as we do that, we're able to step into the embrace of the Father and receive our true identity, receive our worth, receive our value. And that receiving the love of God it is actually the thing that frees us up to see the person in front of us. That actually his love and faithfulness his grace in our life, 
that's the thing that actually enables us to be obedient and enables us to do all the good works that he's prepared for us to do. It's actually a lot easier to be merciful and generous when we don't have to be right and we don't have to be the judge. I actually think we need to preach the gospel to ourselves on a regular basis and actually just receive that love in that place of surrender over and over and over and over and over and over again. We need hearts that are just awash with God's love because the current of the world is like this rip in the ocean. It's just constantly dragging us out into self-reliance and independence and competition and performance. And we have to keep on looking up onto the beach and finding the flags, you know, the flags of grace and truth, because between those flags is the place of God's love. And wade back away from the rocks, back between the flags. And that's the safe place. I think that's the place where our heart is safe and secure. That's the place where we're settled and our hearts can come to a place of rest and then we can actually see the the patient who's frustrated and tired and crying or we're happy to have our schedule disrupted because that's actually a need Um, or we can just listen without having to fret about whether we've got the right words or the right thing to say in the right moment and we don't need to be right So sometimes I actually think it's easier said than done to stay between the flags. And it's probably something that we can all grow in. Um, One thing that I do in the mornings is make sure that I've actually knelt before God and received his embrace before I do anything else before I start praying, because if I start praying before I do that, my prayers are much more scattered and anxious and unfocused and all about me. But just coming into that place between the flags is a good place to start. But my sense is that God actually has something for all of us in this, a way, a strategy, a something just to help us stay in that place during the day and during the week. So we're going to pray, similarly to what we did last time. Um, I'll talk about that in a moment. But one other thing, I'm not going to call it a challenge, as I think that just feels like, oh, we'll have to perform, and we don't want to do that. But a thought, if you're in a habit of doing some kind of examine at the end of the day or just a time of reflection before bed, One thing that you could ask of yourself and of Holy Spirit is, where did I see the person in front of me today? And where didn't I? Where did I miss it? Because I was in a flap or I was insecure or I was in a rush and X, Y, Z. And just let God show you. Because we're all... We're all learning. 
And every day is good fodder for learning with the Holy Spirit. And then if you just get a really great creative idea on how to stay in the flags and you want to share it next week, that'd be amazing. Or you have a moment where you recenter and you look at the person in front of you. That'd be an awesome story to share. But in the meantime, why don't we just take a little bit of time now with one another to just gather, gather in groups of three. And like Sarah demonstrated last week, not set ourselves up to perform, but actually to just be present with one another. Just invite the Holy Spirit to come and just pray for the person to have a fresh encounter with God's love, a fresh experience, a refreshing, kind of Sabbathy, restful, refreshing and resetting of our hearts. Maybe that'll involve a, a re-surrender for you. Maybe it'll involve a, a repentance or just a crying out again for God. Um, but you don't feel like you need to say a whole lot. If you get a particular word or a scripture or something for that person, then that's great. Definitely share it. Um, but don't feel like you have to have a whole lot of great words. Just simple blessing will be perfect. We're well on time. <laughs> Let's take 10, 10 minutes or so and then I'll call us back and we can wrap up.